The Lonely Hour is back with another essay. Hi all, it's Julia, and along with my new team at The Listening Booth, home of Memory Motel and the forthcoming What's Happening Here, I'll be launching season two in the fall. In the meantime, I'm sharing essays on loneliness to give you a little something to chew on. I commissioned these pieces over the summer. You can read all 18 on thelonelyhour.com under the Stories section, and I've picked five of my favorites to be read aloud here by the writers themselves. After each reading, I'll ask the author a few questions. Today, I feel pretty damn privileged to have writer and professor Rachel Menes here. She's only 30 years old, which shocked me considering what a good writer and speaker she is. I told her as much via email, and she responded, Turning 30 was the best feeling. Never been happier to say goodbye to a decade. Anyway, here's her Lonely Hour essay, which we called On the Fence. In the middle of Carnegie Mellon University's campus stands a six-post fence. It neither protects nor encloses a thing. It's a steel concrete fixture that spans the width of the main quad, covered in close to a thousand layers of hand-painted, never sprayed or rolled paint. Sometimes students sleep outside of it in tents, buckets of paint stewarded inside. They paint over it with their fraternity's Greek lettering, or an announcement of an annual dance recital, or the name of their dorms. If you want the true story behind the fence's origins, or its assuredly codified sense of rules, you'll have to check a university website, or search Google, or tap a student on the shoulder and ask her. Everything I know about the fence I've learned by observation— I've never taken a campus tour or talked about the fence with a colleague. I've just walked by it alone for four years every morning while the campus is still quiet and watched the new paint dry. Congrats, Alpha Kappa Alpha pledges, Korean Students Association love, Make America Great Again, Trump 2016, Make America Great Again, Trump 2016. I teach writing in the English department, and I am a lucky adjunct the sort who's found a mostly stable home at a stable private institution. I've learned, as a result, how to do a deeply skilled impersonation of a professor. I even have an office, albeit shared, in the departmental wing. My wingmates, though not quite my colleagues, look like my colleagues to my students when my students visit my office hours. The main difference between myself and my tenure-track office mates, besides their heightened job security and income, is our degree of isolation. I've never met any of the faculty in my wing, though they appear to know each other. I suspect they meet each other's eyelines often in faculty meetings in which, as special faculty, I'm uninvolved. They may even know each other's spouses or children, as most colleagues who work together for years come to know. My mailbox sits beside theirs in the same wooden stack. I move through the hallways quietly on the days I spend in my office, my door only open if I'm meeting with students. Instead of asking them all what's going on or unfolding the campus paper delivered to our wing each day, I consult the fence. This spring, students placed a microphone in front of the fence and read anonymous stories of sexual assaults on campus back to back. The fence bore the date and time of the reading in paint that morning. A small crowd gathered and listened as a larger one passed back and forth en route to class. It was the first time I'd heard the fence speak, and I stayed for as long as I could before retreating to my office. As I stood alone among the crowd of students, something I rarely have occasion to do, I noticed that most gripped their phones even though they didn't photograph or film the event. 
The devices remained in reach just in case someone might contact them or something might merit a snap, even during a reading as solemn as this one. And last fall, I witnessed a student walk headfirst into a glass door while texting, crashing his entire body into the pane. Three nearby students slid their own phones into their pockets before bending down to help him. I watched long enough to see him recheck his phone after he stood, blushing, but uninjured. Surely he'd hurt himself. In their smartphone dependency, these students are hardly unique in either their addiction or their isolation, but the devices are still banned from my classroom. At 8.30 a.m. on the nose, when I say good morning to my students, 19 phones drop into backpacks as if choreographed. It won't kill you to leave your friends hanging for a second, I joke. Remember, you can talk to your classmates. There are times in the classroom, in the departmental wing hallways, where loneliness and communion get confusing or confused. My texting students aren't communicating with their in-class peers or with their professor, but they're fervently speaking to someone. On a campus especially known for its loneliness and stress, and with rates of sexual assault on par with the national average, I understand the risks of silencing my students, even as I work with them to open their voices to each other in my classroom, something when I retreat to my office, I struggle to do myself. What do I spend much of my office hours time doing if no students arrive? Not knocking on my colleagues' doors, instead talking on Gchat, Instagram, Snapchat. When I think of how we often find ourselves lonely on campus while surrounded by others, I think of the students sleeping outside the fence, waiting for their peers to text each other photos of what they've painted. I think of Mark, the most chronic violator of my cell phone policy. His nonstop texting, despite numerous warnings from me, never abated. He used his iPhone every class of the semester, which technically flagged him for failure. In our penultimate class, in spite of his classmate presenting at the front of the room, I watched Mark cup his iPhone in his palms, his hands moving fast over the screen. But Mark, for the first time I'd seen in 15 weeks, was grinning, the sort of openly stupid smile someone newly smitten might make. This one time, I chose to let it go. After class ended, I walked past the fence to the bus stop. I watched as students crisscross the quad, surrounding, then leaving the fence as they headed to anywhere next. You mentioned that Carnegie Mellon is a campus well-known for its loneliness. What did you mean by that? What does loneliness on campus look like? That's a great question. And in thinking about Carnegie Mellon in particular, I want to first say that Uh, Carnegie Mellon has a reputation among its undergraduates. It's a workhorse campus. It's a campus where really bright students come who already know what they want to study, who have already excelled in that area, even in high school. And they show up to go to, in particular, uh, Carnegie Mellon is really strong in STEM in engineering, in computer science. They also have a nationally ranked musical theater program, professional musical theater program. So this is a university where students might relax by working or by doing things that I might call work adjacent. They're working on problem sets for problems that they've seen online or they're doing hackathons. The, the, there is a football team. They play. I've had students that are on the football team. But in terms of your traditional sort of idea of what a campus experience or a college experience might be like, if you think about 
the usual markers like football or fraternities. They're present on campus, but they're not the dominant culture. And when I say that this campus is well known for its loneliness, what happens because of that workhorse sort of mentality, um, loneliness and stress is a concomitant problem there. And if you look at the sort of publications of campus culture, like the newspaper or the uh, overheard at Carnegie Mellon Facebook page, most of the the sort of zeitgeist is about how much students work. All of the memes that are posted, all of the jokes are about how overworked or uh, under-relaxed students are. And that breeds loneliness in a really profound way for students. And I see that in my students. Um, when my students come to me because they are falling behind in their work, it's because they're working too hard in another class or they're unable to manage the amount that they're being asked to work. And that means a lot of time alone in their dorm rooms or alone in the library or alone all night in places where you're supposed to be sleeping. So I think that's what CMU in particular, when I think about CMU being a place that loneliness and stress defines it, it's primarily for those reasons. You wrote, quote, In their smartphone dependency, these students are hardly unique in either their addiction or their isolation, end quote. Do you mean to say that the use of iPhones and the like is making us a more isolated people? Because smartphones are a communication tool um, and because we are very dependent on them today, they can, just like they can make us uh, better in touch with each other and communicate more, they also, of course, can take us away from each other. And I think we've all been in the situation that I describe in the essay, which is you're trying to engage or interact with or help somebody, whether it's professor-student or friend-friend or partner, and they're on their phone. And they're mediating your in-person interaction by texting another person or taking a selfie or checking their social media accounts. So in some ways, this dependency can absolutely breed isolation, but I don't think that it's fair to just demonize it as the as the culprit, especially for millennials, right? Millennials are taking the bulk of this. We're all obsessed with ourselves and our phone sort of critique. And I think that's uh, quite frankly, just more of the scapegoating of young people that we see one generation at a time as we keep uh, moving through them. So I don't think that they on their own, the use of iPhones on their own are making us more isolated. And I think we see ample evidence that they are actually making us less isolated and better in touch with each other and better aware of each other's lives. But of course they have that possibility. Uh, And I will say pedagogically as a writing instructor, I have yet to figure out any way that they help with my teaching and communication with my students. And so I just entirely prohibit them. Because in the classroom, I think all they do is distract and isolate. What does loneliness mean to you? That is a great question. I think about this a lot as a writer because the daily quotidian practicing of what I do is solitary. And I think what I would probably want to do in answering this question is parse a couple of different definitions of loneliness here. And perhaps as a writing instructor, this move will not surprise you. When we think about loneliness as literally just the state of being alone, which is to say not around other people, I think about that as solitude. And I actively cultivate solitude in my life because I am a writer, a poet. Writing is my my means of making art. It's my means of making communication. And I need solitude when I actually sit down to do that work. So in some ways, I crave loneliness. I'm also an introvert. And I find that when unchecked, I could spend a lot of time in that state of solitude doing this sort of work. For me, when solitude transitions into loneliness, um, and in this case, loneliness, meaning that sort of 
depressed or anxious feeling of being alone, that realizing you are alone and then wishing that would change feeling alone among other people. When I move from solitude into loneliness, it's when I've spent too much time at the fair in that sort of isolated state. And it's a fine line. It can happen very quickly and it can happen without like a way to fix it. I can be sitting at my desk having worked on a book for a long time and all of a sudden realize I've been alone all day and feel deeply sad. So I think about this a lot as someone whose life is defined in many ways, or at least the art side of my life is defined in many ways by the state of loneliness. It is not something that I would necessarily say we must avoid. And I think about this with my students too. When you live in a dorm and you're surrounded by people, when you walk to class surrounded by people, when you are in conversation with students in the classroom, you're doing group projects, feeling alone in that context can feel damning. It can feel wrong. You can think, wait, I'm surrounded by all these people. Why do I feel alone? And so sometimes I do try to stress to my students, part of mental health cultivation is finding space for solitude because then you can go back in, out in the world and find those people really invigorating. And I do this in my own life too. So what does loneliness mean to you, listeners? I'm not the expert on the topic. I'm just the shepherd of the conversation. So let's explore what loneliness means together. Drop me a voicemail with your definition on Google Voice. Dial 415-663-5901. That's 41lonely01. You can also record your thoughts as a voice memo and email me the mp3 file at lonelyhourpodcast at gmail.com. Just make sure to include your name and an email address so I can get back to you, because we may use what you said in a future episode. Otherwise, stay tuned, because I'll be sharing a new essay soon. In the meantime, you can read all of them at thelonelyhour.com. And as always, you can email me there or find me on Twitter at Lonely Podcast or on the Lonely Hours Facebook page.